really got me. You know, I think it's because he was gay. Got the nuances more. get me a gay mickey gotta get a gay well hello and welcome to another episode of in the details a celebration of nuance where each week i queen out on all of the acting choices micro moments and magic in the minutiae that make a scene great my name is colin drucker your name is as you guessed it barbara bell gettys and this week we are finally continuing our ongoing series cherishing valerie you probably if you're listening to this episode you know what you, you know what this is you know that this is my ongoing exploration into the acting choices micro moments and magic in the minutiae of the comeback and all of the magic that Lisa Kudrow is bringing to the table as Valerie Cherish. Um, I uh, apologies for the delay with this. Uh, it's just been a uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, who cares? Who wants to hear excuses? Um, in any event, I um, before I jump into it, I I figured I should just provide a few relevant updates. One, I saw the wife, so I think I should just comment on that because uh, my previous. Oscar nominees episode was mostly uninformed um, and, and still is, except for having seen The Wife. So thoughts on The Wife. I think the movie itself, I think the, the, the story was somewhat slight. It kind of felt like it felt like a short story that I would have loved in college. You know, it felt like one of those kind of contemporary mid 20th century late 20th century you know character driven fiction stories likely written by a woman um that's how i prefer it no I, there's actually a lot of uh, male writers that i like but uh this is a story that definitely feels like it's being told from a woman's perspective uh, and i believe that the screenplay was written by a woman as well so um so that's of course cool and great and all that but i mean as a movie it, it just didn't I was just like, okay. It pretty much felt like like a showcase for Glenn Close to perform. And listen, I obviously have no issue with that. That's I I will pay to see that. I I love the concept of a movie that is just featuring a a woman of a certain age acting with a capital A. Really, like that's great. But I mean, I and maybe maybe it's because I went into this movie really just watching it for Glenn Close's performance. I kind of went into it with the mindset of that's how I'm seeing it. So there's some like confirmation bias. I don't know. Uh, but before I talk about Glenn, I will say Jonathan Price as the husband, so to speak, is great. I mean, I knew who that man was. That was a very, like, I feel like for as much as we're all talking about Glenn Close, and I I, <laughs> I hate to be that guy who's like, um, could we talk about the man in the room? Could we be giving more attention to the man? Um, I So I don't, <laughs> I don't want to divert away from Glenn, but uh, I just want to give credit where credit's due that uh, Jonathan Price is, is really phenomenal in this movie. And so is... Um, well, God, I, what's her name? Is it Annie Stark? Is that it's Glenn Close's daughter playing the younger, um, the younger Joan, and she's really good. She's very, um, 
I kind of noticed her right away. I think I've mentioned this maybe in a past episode that like when a movie goes into a flashback, I'm just like, oh, come on. You know, like I, I, I was so close, you know, like it's kind of that feeling. But uh, this I didn't get. I mean, I'll admit, I kind of fell out of the flashbacks as the movie went on, but mostly because Glenn wasn't in them, and I was really just here for Glenn, and then, like, secondarily, Jonathan Price. But um, I, I noticed Annie Stark, I, that might not be her name, you know, Glenn's daughter, because she just had this very... When a, when a flashback starts, I expect this very particular style of acting that just doesn't excite me, this kind of mannered way of... of being 1950s but she was so different and unaffected you know and so I don't know I felt like her face was just kind of this like um open field I don't know that's not what I want to say I it was like a open field what a weird way to describe someone's face I guess I'm just trying to say that I could like see all this truth she just felt like I don't want to say blank slate that makes that makes her sound stupid that and and that of course would be an ironic thing to say about this character talking about the wife because that's the whole conceit is that she's, you know, the mastermind behind all of this. Is that a spoiler? Do we all know the story of the wife? I mean, I don't think that's like a big twist, you know, uh, but I won't say any more in case you don't know. But um, I think if you watch the trailer, you mostly know. In any event, Glenn, I, do I think they should give her the – yes, I think they should give her the Oscar I, because they didn't give it to her for Fatal Attraction. And while I didn't see Dangerous Liaisons and, like, I'm – I'm sure I should. I uh, trust me. I know who else is in that. That I there's someone else in that that I oh it's Michelle Pfeiffer's in that. I love her. Um, do I love Michelle Pfeiffer? I like Michelle Pfeiffer at moments. I like Michelle Pfeiffer the way I like Nicole Kidman. It's like I always think that they're just these kind of um, emotionless ice queens, and then like you look in their eyes, and it's just like Medusa. You know, it's just like oh my god, you got a whole world going on in there. So that's what I like about Michelle Pfeiffer. But what is going on in my hallway? I don't know if that's picking up. I, I feel like whenever I record, Marco freaks out or there's some nonsense in the hallway. I'm going to move where I record in my apartment. But I do know that somewhere on my floor, and there's only like seven apartments or eight apartments per floor, but there is a child on my floor now. I don't know if that's what, if that's what I'm hearing right now. I don't want to focus on it too long, but I'm just not happy about that. There's a child on my floor. Ugh. Anyway, I don't know. Anyway, you know what I mean? I don't... Mm. So anyway, I thought Glenn, yes, I think Glenn was great. I think I was talking to about, let's try the sentence again. I was talking to a friend about this uh, a couple weeks ago, and he said, I said, is this similar to like Julie Christie in Away From Her, where it maybe never goes to a 10, but it is so solidly like accomplished that it doesn't really need to. And he's like, yeah, that's exactly it. Like it's you could this is just like this is the result of an actor who's just like tremendously accomplished and knows their craft and is like so good at being in a movie you know and i thought oh and so watching it from that respect because i don't know if i've talked about this much but i love away from her i love that movie so I want to do an ep- – I keep meaning to do an episode on it. I It was going to do it like when I first thought of this podcast. That was one of the first things that was on the list was the movie Away From Her because of just – mostly just how much it made me cry. So, um, yeah, I mean The Wife I, – I, it's not a movie that I ne- necessarily like need to see again. It didn't make me feel very good. Not that a movie has to, but if a movie makes you kind of feel crummy, you don't really want to see it again. I mean like, you know. Like, hereditary. Ugh, not that it makes me feel crummy, but it's just, like, hard to watch. 
I've talked about that, except for the dinner table scene. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if it's a movie I really want to experience again, but I really appreciated what, what Glenn Close was doing, and I don't think this is just a legacy award. She took this role that doesn't really have much meat to it, like, in a way. Like, the role requires or it relies on the actress entirely to make it interesting. And not that the script isn't good or that the directing isn't specific, but I don't know. I just, I think that, that this performance or this role kind of lived or died by the actor. And it wasn't kind of like, I don't know. I mean, I've talked about this sometimes, you know, some, sometimes I talk about this. I've mentioned, you know, uh, Alice and Janney and I, Tanya in the past. Great performance, but it's kind of written and designed and directed to win a Best act, Sporting Actress. It's so quintessential. So um, that being said, Alice and Janney is amazing. Everyone's great. Everyone's wonderful regardless. Let's just say that. So, <laughs> But um, yeah, so do I think Glenn should win? Uh, having still not seen Roma, I think last episode I said I was going to watch it, so I still haven't watched it, but I did see The Wife. Um, I, I can't say for sure. I also still have not seen Can You Ever Forgive Me, though I've heard lots of like people saying, oh, that was my favorite performance, and that is certainly moving. And while I'm still not compelled to see A Star is Born, uh, a big thank you to Leanne, who knows the way to my heart. Well, there isn't necessarily a Best Supporting Actress in the in the movie. Sam Elliott as Best Supporting Actor. I can get into a Best Supporting Actor. There, I can get very excited by a Best Supporting Actor. I'll, I should do an episode. It'll be hard because it won't be about women. But about some of, like, the Best Supporting Actors that I'm excited by. Like, I, like for example, just to, just to say it here, I love um, Alan Arkin in Little Miss Sunshine. I love that movie. That has an episode coming, too. Obviously, Tony Collette's in that. Um, but And Best Supporting Actress nominee Abigail Breslin, who, spoiler alert, have I talked about this before? If I have, this is a, a reminder for you and me both. Spoiler alert, Abigail Breslin is great in Little Miss Sunshine. And that scene, that hotel room scene between her and Alan Arkin is um, so good. It is so, uh, it's so much more than just like, oh, here's this like old guy being vulgar and here's this kid being cute. It's so much smarter than that. So... Um, but yeah, I love Alan Arkin. I love him in Edward Scissorhands. I loved him in Little Miss Sunshine. He's one of those actors where I'm like, oh, oh yeah, I like him. I'd like, to, I'd, I'd watch him in that. So uh, anyway, why am I talking about this? I have no idea. I I should get back on track. We need to get into cherishing Valerie. The only thing I want to say before we get into it. Oh, oh, I didn't even mention. Uh, what do I think about A Star Is Born, Lady Gaga, Best Actress? Am I gonna see it? I mean, I'll see it because I'm going to see Sam Elliott because Leanne mentioned oh, – that's how we got on this tangent. Leanne had mentioned he has this, like, one moment. He has this look, and I love a look. Like, I love a look. There were moments that Glenn had in The Wife where I was like, oh, there it is. That's where you won. Uh, she has this great moment where the husband says something, and she says, oh, I'm so touched or something like that. And it's – and I, like, laughed, and I said, oh, there it is. Give her the Oscar. Like, that's it. And – um Oh, there's that scene where she's trying to get the walnut out of his hand with the with the phone number on it or the address or whatever, and um, or no, no, maybe it's when they're in the they're in the the limo later, and I'm not gonna. This is kind of climactic, but they, there's a bit of a fight in the limo that gets physical without violent. Um, that she's that there's just great, uh, it's, it's great choreography, it's great directing, it's great acting. Um, 
I think I'd read that Glenn Close and Jonathan Price had like worked on this like, like over, for like a week, just doing table work on this. And you can tell they are the chemistry between them in terms of playing this relationship. These characters is so is so real and so smart. So um, I guess I've heard similar things about Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, just to kind of row back to the point I was trying to make. Um, I don't know. I don't know why I'm not excited to see it, but I'll see it because of Sam Elliott and that look. Um, and I like Sam Elliott. He's, I mean, he can still get it, whatever. I'm not, I'm not mad at vintage. So not that it's all about that, but it can hurt, right? Well, it could, but you just have to relax. And so anyway, um, the only other thing I want to mention before we get into things is I recently saw the Broadway production. It's a stage production. I think maybe it started in was first done in London on the West End and brought to Broadway. In any event, it is the stage production of Network. Uh, it's And it's kind of a dovetailing of some of my favorite things because it's directed by this um, Dutch director, Ivo van Hove, who some of the stuff he's done, he just he kind of turns the volume up to a 27. Like I, I've seen him do the little foxes. I saw him do the misanthrope of you from the bridge. He did the crucible, but I missed it. Is it crucible or crucible? Oh, I always do this. Who cares? Um, but anyway, he'll take some of these like classic plays um, and he just explodes them. He just, he brings in this kind of like operatic energy underneath and, and, you know, he brings in a lot of, you know, especially with network, there was lots of cameras and screens and, and multimedia. And um, th there's just so much commentary in the production. And there's so much that he's kind of like these little, you know, nuances or these concepts that he just uh, amplifies. And it, it mostly works for me. I think some people who've seen a lot of his work kind of feel like there's a lot of tricks and a lot of gimmicks and a lot of, you know, um, I don't know, just smoke and mirrors and maybe not a lot of substance underneath. I, I'm always excited to see what happens, but I definitely, compared to the first few productions of his I've seen uh, versus now, I do go in kind of waiting to see what Evo's going to do. And, you know, like the first thing I saw of, that he directed was doing The Little Foxes like 10 years ago at New York Theater Workshop. And sometimes when I mention these like very obscure things in All Right, Mary, there's like somebody else who's seen it and like can can wave back. This is a, a bit of a smaller audience, but I take the risk if you're a New Yorker or have been or whatever and saw this production, like you have to contact me. We have to talk about it. Don't be shy. I won't find it weird in the least uh, because it's like the, the best thing I've ever seen. Um, and it started, oh, it started Elizabeth Marvel as Regina, who is Oh my God, she's, oh my God, she's so, she's so good. I'm trying to think who she, she reminds me of somebody. She has almost like a, a Stocker Channing quality to her, but I think she's maybe younger. But it's, there's some moments in that that are just out of this world. But anyway, I, I didn't really know what to expect. And so I think all of Evo's tricks just like knocked me off my feet because I think they, they also didn't feel as bombastic and, I think especially in New York Theater Workshop, which is a smaller space, it also it's a different experience versus on Broadway. The ones I've seen on Broadway are in much larger spaces. It does start to feel like more spectacle than story. I'm, I'm skirting around the most important thing, the thing you're probably wondering about, the thing that you, you have been just tapping your toe waiting about uh, to hear, and that's not Cherishing Valerie Part 6, which we still haven't gotten to. Maybe you fast-forwarded. Who cares? Um, not that I don't care, but like... Yeah, that I mean that's fine. You can. Let me anyway. 
let's talk about Louise. Let's talk about this production's Louise. Louise, uh, just to refresh your memory, if you if you're not a long time in the details listener, if you have not picked up all the nuances, if I haven't said it enough times, I it's like my favorite thing. One of my favorite performances, the the best supporting actress, Beatrice Strait, for like six minutes of screen time as Louise Schumacher in Network. If you need a whole refresher, episode two of In the Details, Gay for Beatrice Strait, we'll catch you right up. But listen to that later. Um, this Louise compared to Beatrice Strait. I mean, nothing compares, right? But it was not bad. It was pretty solid. The role is, the lines are almost word for word. Like, they kept almost all of that intact from that scene. I, I mean, it, I've seen that scene so many times in the movie that it's indelible to me. So anything that varies from that. It's hard to not mostly focus on the variation, but there were two moments where this Louise, I was like, well, you, you now have a piece of this performance because I, I realized afterward, I was like, oh, these are the only two interpretations that exist of Louise right now. Like there isn't also a book or there isn't like a TV movie or like a remake or another stage production. Like this is it. And so there was at one point earlier on, I think, before she really gets into some of that stuff, you know, because this isn't, this is your great last winter romance, like before all of that. And after he admits to being in love with Diana and she's been crying a bit and she like wipes the tears from her mouth. Like they've kind of, you know, obviously dripped down a bit and she wipes them from her mouth and then wipes her hand on her dress. And I know like, like it's like, girl, but it, Either that excites you or that doesn't. And there's two types of people in this world. And if it does, then that's probably why you're listening right now. It was so human and so, like, I, I just, I don't know how you could, that could happen every night. Like, it, I felt like I was seeing a very special moment. You know, for me, these are the things that I love. It was such a unique micro moment. She might do it all the time. But the fact that it looked so natural and organic and that it was only from that night I mean, that really speaks to the talent of that actress. And, you know, obviously I haven't looked up who it is, so I can give credit to her. But <laughs> um, I shall, I'll put it in the notes. I'll put it in the notes for this episode. The other thing I want to mention is she has the uh, one variation that she did in the movie. Beatrice Strait says, I'm your wife, damn it. And, you know, then has that amazing line about um, if, if, uh, if I can't expect loyalty, then the least I demand is respect and allegiance and that whole part. Um, anyway, so she, so Beatrice Strait, I should just, I'll play the clip right here so you can hear it. I'm your wife, damn it! And if you can't work up a winter passion for me, the least I require is respect and allegiance! So you have to, like, suffer through me doing it. <laughs> Colin Drucker as Louise Schumacher. <laughs> God. Um, but then the wife in Network, the Louise in this Network... Uh, in this production, the way she did it was, I'm your wife. Damn it. Like she did something like that. And it was like a pause. And then this damn it that was like this, like this frustration that it was more internal and more like, oh, fuck. Like something like that. I, I just like, I, I was like, can I start clapping now? It was, it was great. It was, it was phenomenal. And it was so exciting. If you live in New York, if you get a chance to see this, the, I don't know if it's a perfect production, but I also don't, I don't, I think Brian Cranston, he, oh, I should have mentioned this, Brian Cranston plays Howard Beale. Um, I have to say that that may be 
uh, one of the best things I've ever seen on Broadway. And I, I, I loathe hyperbole. I hate to say that. Like, there's so many things I've seen, but I think partially because they use they can use cameras and they had close, there's a big screen and they had a camera like really close up on his face. And there's this whole, they pull it right from the movie, but it's really the, the famous scene of Howard melting down. And it all ends with the line of like, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. But because they could be zoomed in on him, we could see all those nuances and we could see all of those little details. And he was, I mean, the, it was like Tony Collette in hereditary levels of ringing himself out. It was really, really impressive. And I, I obviously much like the Oscars have not seen enough to know what's all going to be nominated for the Tonys, but I'll, this hands down will be nominated, but I would be shocked if this didn't win because that was, um, again, much like, much like Louisa's little, you know, booger moment. (laughs) This felt like I was seeing something really special and something um, even again, he probably has done this performance so many times. He's such a talented actor. He's done, you know, this level of work in so many different things. But for it to have felt so fresh that night, for it to have felt so, so real that it wasn't possible to have happened again or before is I, I think you could give a Tony that actor. Absolutely. Um Anyway, I think that I have gone on way longer than I needed to, to stall, not to stall us, but um, to kind of lead up to part six of Cherishing Valerie. That's right. This week, we are continuing the exploration of season two with this week's episode, The Assassination of Valerie Cherish, exploring Jane's return into Valerie's life. And also Valerie as Mallory and how we see it and how she sees it. If I had a thousand paintings in a marble gallery, every single picture. We know Valerie Cherish, the actress, best by her limitations. This isn't to say she's necessarily a bad actress, but she is an actress without art. It feels almost perfect that Lisa Kudrow, someone who has no formal acting training, would channel this character who also would reject any kind of formal training the way a body rejects a transplant. Valerie is not an artist, at least not in the conscious sense. In the same way that Kim Kardashian, or really most of the Kardashian clan, are not artists. They are a type of pop art, a living, breathing, moving exhibit that, yes, sometimes creates, but ultimately none of it is to be taken too seriously or seen outside of the context of this is a Kardashian's version of this. But unlike Kim K, there is no Kris Jenner behind the scenes pulling the strings and levers. There is no mastermind to Valerie Cherish except for Valerie herself, the very human, very resilient, and very wounded human who is desperately just trying to keep two steps ahead of reality. She performs this dreamy way of talking about Hollywood as this exciting land of make-believe, but Valerie knows it's a company town the same way Detroit was Motor City, the same way 
Wall Street is the financial capital. It, it's a business, and it's going to treat you like a commodity. To glamorize Hollywood is to enable the toxic relationship to persist no matter the abuse. Valerie is returning to television with scars and maybe even still some unhealed wounds. She sees this business for what it is now more than she ever did before, even when the comeback premiere episode shattered her entire paradigm. What she doesn't see are her blind spots. Valerie always has blind spots. We're most familiar with the negative ones, the willful ignorance of Mickey's illness or the sabotage of her marriage for the show, but Valerie has one very important blind spot, her raw talent. Valerie doesn't win an Emmy merely for stunt casting and seeing red. It's not like it was a weak year and she eked out over some stale support from the Modern Family Collective or because Anne Dowd wasn't nominated, you know? Well, while Valerie is distracted, what with navigating humiliating blowjob fantasies and awkward green screen nightmares in front of the New York Times reporter, no less, she's giving an incredibly, you guessed it, nuanced performance as Mallory Church. Season two is really about Valerie emerging like a, a deep sea diver coming to the surface. In seeing Red, she emerges as a serious actress, as an actress someone is taking seriously. Finally. While this is, of course, unfolding on seeing Red itself, the iceberg underneath is the behind-the-scenes footage that season two morphs into. Valerie's pilot finds a new identity in this return to television. The producers at HBO aren't exactly desperate for her comeback part two, these cameras surrounding Valerie are like a pack of Pomeranians that must be accommodated so long as she's on the show. They need to find a place for them. The young, somewhat ditzy associate producer Connor, a fay fanboy who oozes passive-aggressive charm, suggests they could use it as web content, but of course that would mean getting a union crew. This is what brings Jane Benson back into the mix. Her name comes up the same way Tom Selleck's name comes up in season one to play Big Dick Perkins. And in both cases, Valerie's delusionally confident that they'll say yes. Valerie pursues Jane, perhaps not because she thinks Jane is such a great producer, but because despite everything, they did establish a bond while doing the comeback. Jane is also kind of like an old drug dealer whose number Valerie found again. She's someone Valerie remembers giving her reliable doses of the fame drug. And Valerie wonders if maybe she's still dealing. Jane Benson has always needed the money. It's why she was the producer of the comeback in 2005, and it's ultimately what brings her back into Valerie's paradigm almost 10 years later. When we last saw Jane, she was like a sniper in the crowd of autograph-hungry fans, proud of Valerie, proud maybe even of herself. At least she knew in that moment that she had job security, and in Hollywood that was a rare privilege. Jane, like so many people in the entertainment industry, was working on the projects that paid to fund the ones that did not, the ones that paid her emotionally and spiritually but did not keep the lights on. In season one, we see Jane living in a modest apartment complex, but in season two, almost a decade later, Jane has a sprawling farm way off the beaten path with a barn and horses and goats and a perfect country kitchen. 
She also has an Oscar as a doorstopper. Jane, like Valerie, has been chewed up and spit out by Hollywood, whereas Valerie has repeatedly dusted herself off and tried again with diminishing results before this week. Jane has stopped touching the hot stove. She's learned her lesson. And it's not that she's gotten tired of repeated failures or failures to launch. She attained one of the highest accomplishments in the industry. But it doesn't matter. Jane's Oscar and the metaphorical weight it carries, and according to Valerie, it's actually literally quite heavy, is an early warning to Valerie and that eventual Emmy. There are so many actresses who have been nominated and even won Emmys, even Oscars, and went on to struggle in their career or see it careen into a dead end with one false move or one missed opportunity. It is incredibly important to Valerie's existence to keep her blinders up about that. I don't think Valerie believes she's exempt from the grind of Hollywood. I think it's like an abusive relationship. It's been like this for so long, she's never considered that it could be any different or better. Machines grind. That's what they do. The backside of Valerie's delusion is an absurd level of resilience to that fact. Jane, of course, is not interested in getting back in bed with the devil, but when Valerie needs something, she can be cunning like a car salesman, angling constantly to find a weak spot to penetrate. Eventually, she finds the old reliable, the reason Jane even did the comeback in the first place. They're just so beautiful, you know, and just think of how many more you could rescue with the money that you'd make doing the show. Did you answer and I missed it? No. Okay. All right. I give up. That's okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, is that the barn? Is that where you have the Taiwanese boat ladies that you can't finish because you don't have the money? Is that where that is? All right. You're making me feel bad. Well, I, look, I mean, I'm sorry, but I just, I, all I hear you say is that, you know, I don't have money to do the things that I really want to do, and I'm here offering you money to do those things, you know, and a do-over with me, right? So. Jane ends up transforming the purpose, or really repurposing all of this footage, into something so much deeper than a pilot for Bravo or web content for HBO. In Jane's hands, we are watching what she calls the assassination of Valerie Cherish what will end up being an HBO documentary charting the kamikaze mission of an actress willingly participating in not only a sort of revisionist history of her own experience, but a Lynchian repetition of it. In the process, her home is invaded, her marriage is strained, and she starts to lose her grip on the truth, a, a grip she desperately tried to regain in the years since the premiere episode of The Comeback, woke her up to the nightmare that is the entertainment industry, now and always. It has always been and always will be this sick. The assassination of Valerie Cherish is an ironic title because even at lethal doses, Hollywood can't kill Valerie. And ultimately, I think that's what Jane is capturing. The dark side of fame is not only the flagrant abuse of power that goes on, 
but an often shameless submission to that abuse and the reward system in place that keeps someone like Valerie coming back for more despite the mounting damages. I don't think Jane has any intention of humiliating Valerie. I don't think she ever did. Her job was always to capture the footage. But what we see this season is Jane's own drive, her own ambitions, especially when this turns into her own project, something HBO actually wants to distribute unlike her other work. Jane finally gets some power of her own this season and inevitably abuses it by getting Valerie to wear a wire to her reconciliation dinner with Mark. You could say that this is just the nature of the beast. Machines grind. Can't tell the story without getting the footage. Gotta get the footage. And maybe that's what it truly takes to feed the insatiable yet fickle appetites of the masses. In season one, Valerie insisted that she was not doing Coliseum-style reality TV and ended up on what was essentially a candid camera long con. Season 2 feels like watching Valerie do one of those Japanese game shows with the obstacle courses and elbow pads and gonzo graphics. Jane is like the host clutching a microphone just out of the way of the mess, watching Valerie's progress with a wider view of the obstacles ahead and occasionally prompting her to make a left instead of a right, because if Valerie's going to toss herself into this game show, Jane might as well up the stakes where she can. Get that footage. I think Jane realizes the deeper truth of these obstacles when Valerie takes the Groundlings improv class, which is, of course, a nod to Lisa Kudrow's own roots and the birthplace of Valerie Cherish. Valerie taking an improv class feels almost like its own meta Groundlings character. She is, unsurprisingly, terrible at it, consistently and imploringly telling instead of showing at every moment. What we're seeing here is Valerie's scraps of quote-unquote process. It's similar to the multiple line readings of I don't need to see that. It's just a gross manipulation of emphases and inflection, kind of like trying multiple passwords until landing on the correct one. There is no technique. It is just a matter of changing variables. That does sort of work with a sitcom script that's sparse with nuance. It sort of needs to be manipulated in that way that you need to arrange everything to fit in a small space. Essentially, groceries in the trunk. I see the bare logic of it. But this improv class is a wide open space. There is no room for manipulation and no material to manipulate. Valerie can sew a loose hem, but she can't pattern a dress. Okay, so let's start with you two and everyone else down. Okay, sure. Okay, great. So I'm going to give you two occupations, uh -huh. and then I want you guys just to jump in and go for it. Right. Okay, great. So Seamus, let's give you candy maker. Oh. Okay, good. and Valerie, uh -huh. a minor. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. D did one question. Is it minor like under 21 or minor like coal miner, minor? You show me. I will show you. Okay. Okay. Okay, let's give him some love and applause. Joe's coal miner. Valerie, yeah. stay in the scene. Yes. Don't don't tell me what you're going to do. Show me what Show you're going to do. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to go first? Don't whisper. Just stay in the scene. Right. Yeah, I am. I hope the miners enjoy this taffy I've prepared. Well, I don't know what kind of candy you're making, but I'm a coal miner. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's Taffy. For a fireplace. Alice. Valerie, don't tell me what you're doing. Show me. No, I know, but we both spoke at the same time, so now what? Of course, the comeback doesn't just settle for a sequence of Valerie making a fool of herself. Rewatching season two and analyzing the garbanzo beans out of it, I've really come to recognize the economy of this whole season, and not, not just in the first episode. Season two is almost half the number of episodes of season one, and yet it is navigating so many more complexities. In season one, Mickey didn't have his own plot line. It was more in the details, you know, good name for a podcast. Like seeing him watch Valerie like a hawk and swoop in when necessary just before she broke. Mickey misses part of Valerie's class to take a phone call from the doctor, which, of course, he plays off by referring to it as the island of Dr. Moreau Clinic. It's one of the rare times we can see that Mickey is sparing Valerie the truth, seeing a reality that she isn't and knowing that she's not prepared for it. There is a disappointment underneath the gentleness that he has to break the news to her. Didn't want to miss the saying, but I really had to take this call from the island of Dr. Moreau Clinic with oh. my test results. Oh, okay. Test. Did the rabbit die? <laughs> well, they think they might have possibly found some form of cancer. Oh. Oh, no. Can I do one? What? Do what? Improv. Oh. Tyler, of course, interrupts at this moment, which feels like one of those Michael Patrick King ideas we talked about in part five. You know, what would happen if this totally annoying interruption, this exhausting nephew with a mouthful of chips mocking Valerie's ridiculous impersonation of a coal miner broke into this intense moment and wouldn't end? <laughs> you know, once he's gone, Valerie turns back to Mickey. Uh, why don't you bring some for Mickey? Yeah, thank you. And a water. Yeah. So is everything... Is everything okay? I'm fine. You know me, Red. I've had so many skin cancers removed, I count it as major weight loss. Okay. <laughs> That's good. Okay. Good. Uh, don't yeah. give it a second thought. Okay. I won't. I'm strong. Like bull. <laughs> now that's a good accent. You know, maybe you should be a groundling. Or you should be up on that stage instead of me. Oh, right? not as fast as you. <laughs> well. There is such an amazing micro moment as Valerie turns back to Mickey, back to the conversation, to reality, to ask him if everything is okay. She glances at the camera for a second because I think she knows this is too real for her reality show. But the stakes of that are lower than the stakes of Mickey's health, at least for a brief moment. Her voice breaks just slightly on okay when she's asking him if he's okay, and you can tell that she's starting to cry on the question mark at the end of the sentence. She has gone off the cliff already. And so, of course, Mickey swoops in without missing a beat to reassure her, get her laughing again, using multiple punchlines till she's back on her feet again. Tyler shows up with the food and... The camera catches Jane. It, it, it's like one of the cameramen elbowing us and saying, you seeing what she's saying? Jane is realizing in this moment the depths of truth in this footage. Truth that was not being told in the comeback, but truth she was telling in her Oscar-winning short, The Hidden Women of Treblinka. Truth she was trying to tell about the Taiwanese boat women. It feels almost ridiculous to try and tell those truths and then pivot to the story of Valerie Cherish, a woman of such nauseating privilege and delusion that she can put herself through shit like this by choice and come out of it relatively unscathed. But there is a universal truth here. What humans do to survive. Valerie's delusion in this moment with Mickey is not Valerie being inhumane. It's her at her most vulnerable and primal. Because while Hollywood is never going to kill Valerie, it's partly because she has someone like Mickey to keep her afloat. 
I think of season one when he escorted her to Starbucks after she realized that there was a distinct possibility that she was essentially throwing a party that no one was interested in attending. That the comeback, and by proxy she, wasn't interesting. Wasn't good enough. Valerie is transported back to the sidelines of her field hockey team in these moments. And with no one to cheer for her, she is just the little girl with scoliosis who did everything she could to still be included and was left out anyway. If Mickey wasn't there at that moment to take her for a frappuccino, to offer her a sip of his Chantico drinking chocolate, to assure her that she is enough just as she is, then I don't know if Valerie could continue. What we'll see towards the end of the season is how Mickey's declining health forces Valerie to grow up, get up from the bench on the sidelines, and give up on the game. To turn to all of the things and people that confirm how enough she is and realize that that's what's true. But in this moment at the Groundlings, we are seeing how she's been protected and also prevented from having that evolution by Mickey. And yet he will eventually be her biggest wake-up call. The assassination of Valerie Cherish is in some ways the dismantling of that delusional character of Valerie, TV's it girl of 1991 who doesn't realize it's 2014. However, Jane's documentary could never truly capture that. Valerie Cherish is kept alive by the cameras. The real Valerie peeks out, slips out, sneaks out when no one's looking or she's had too much to drink, but she can't fully emerge until she's out of the spotlight. Ironically, it is a lack of lighting that ultimately allows us to see her most clearly. Valerie, as usual, doesn't realize she's in a documentary about her experience, something trying to capture the truth and not just the Entertainment Tonight truth, until she shows up to film some talking head footage with Jane and notices how low the lights are. Lighting is already a sensitive subject for Valerie. The anxiety over her appearance first kicks in when Liz Novotny, a writer from the New York Times, comes to the set and tells Valerie that she's seen the first episode of Seeing Red and describes her performance as brave. Liz, hi. <laughs> Just wanted to say, <laughs> this isn't what we normally do. You oh. know, this stuff, the special effects. <laughs> Ripping a child apart. I don't know what they're going to have me do for an encore. Uh, eat Santa Claus. <laughs> don't worry. I know this isn't representative of the entire season. Yeah. Okay, good. I saw the first episode. Oh, you did? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah? Mm -hmm. Oh. Your performance is... Very brave. In Valerie's mind, brave performances are sitcom actresses playing tragically disfigured women in exploitative TV movies or older actresses not wearing makeup. The bravery is in facing the tabloids, the scrutiny of the public, destroying whatever public image she thinks they have of her, which in reality is probably nothing special as it is if they remember her at all. With Jane's help, because of course, let's steer Valerie left instead of right here, Valerie gets a hold of the dailies. I think this moment really highlights, no pun intended, how differently Valerie sees herself and reality from what we see. 
or maybe this is a universal truth as well. You know, it's like the way that we hate how our voices sound on recordings or the way we zoom in on every tiny imperfection of ourselves in a photo. Valerie, and by extension, Lisa Kudrow, is phenomenal as Mallory Church, filming an evening phone call in the very office in her home where she's now watching this clip. The scene is lit only by a desk lamp, which Valerie fixates on immediately. But listen closely to the admittedly ham-fisted dialogue Pauly G has written. There is so much of what she is saying that is real. Valerie did catch him getting a blowjob on show night. She had been in this business longer than him. He was on the road to overdosing, and at the time of room and board, his only path to success involved placating Valerie, writing her into the show, giving her an episode, giving her more scenes because she had the comeback. Valerie's delusions attach all of her feelings to the lighting. She blames the lighting for making her look bad, because it was somewhat true on the surface level, but... It hardly compares to who Paulie was making her out to be in the script. What else he is suggesting to be true amidst all of these other real details. Haley, 12 mark. Action. That's fine. I'll leave a message, okay? I don't care if you're available or unavailable. I don't care if you just found out that you have herpes or hepatitis C from one of those whores that you pay to come to your room on show nights. I've been in this business a lot longer than you have, and I will be in this business long after they take you out in a body bag because you are going to OD on some shit that you pump into your veins because you hate yourself. And guess what? I'm your way out, and you're too fucking stupid to even know it. Cut! I've read all these years. You can really act. Well, now. No, that's not good. You know. It's wonderful. Well, no, because, you know, making me look that way, you know? That was take 12, okay? And tired and he pushed me to that i'll find another take no that there wasn't enough light i could feel it i could feel it you know i could feel it action no that's not good just turn it off all right just get rid of it got to do some damage control you know because people aren't going to want to see me look like that jane see that all right got to get billy back get some pretty magazine covers because you know no one on this show cares about how i look huh that line of Mickey's, oh, Red, you can really act, is one of my favorites of the series. It's like a punchline to a joke they set up 30 years ago. And he really speaks for all of us. I remember the first time I saw that scene and just being blown away by how much of a transformation she'd made. We'd never even seen Lisa Kudrow in a role like that before. I mean, she's she'd played ice queens in The Opposite of Sex and The Other Woman, but this this felt so fresh and unpredictable. Valerie, of course, starts to spin out here. This is such a raw nerve of Valerie's. How do I look? She's probably asked that a million times. She literally has someone follow her around to fix her hair. What Mickey saw in that moment was Valerie at her most real, her most compelling, her most true. And Valerie sees this as a call for more magazine covers. Valerie's diva moments are often misanthropic and unconvincing or don't always land perfectly. One of my favorites is the moment at the upfronts when the entire cast of Room and Board has been called on stage by the network president except her, and she, of course, starts to panic. 
The stage manager, already fed up with her gaggle of cameras, snaps at her, and that's when Valerie snaps back. It's a mistake. Go out it's there. Television. Oh, it's out there, Mickey. I can't no, no, no. You two have to go. I've got other shows coming through. No, no, no. See, I'm with that show there. That show's done. Now get your fucking cameras out of my fucking way. All right, that's it. You want to throw the fucks around? I'll throw the fucks around. All right, I have two shows on this network, and he forgot to fucking introduce me. I don't need you pushing me off the stage, okay? okay. They've already done it. Thank you. Thank you. What I've always loved about this moment now is how she almost forgets to get the fuck in there, you know? This time, though, Valerie truly does throw the fucks around without even ever having to say it. She arrives to set to film some interview footage only to discover the harbinger of bad news, more low lighting. And this is when Jane explains what's really going on here, instead of hitting Valerie in the face with it like the premiere of the comeback the last time. There's two things to note with this moment. One, she says that these are HBO's ideas and requests, but I think that HBO is just co-signing Jane's fantasy here. We know that they've tried to work together before, and you know maybe it just wasn't the right project, but I think this one is. Also, there's this brief zoom in on Mickey watching with concern, well, Jane explains the concept, and he's kind of doing the same, like, hand on his mouth, like, watching intently body language uh, in as he did in season one, like, multiple moments where you can just kind of see Mickey in the background or on the sidelines just watching, processing, you know, understanding what's really going on here so he knows when and how to swoop in. Dark enough in here for you, otherwise I'm taking a turn for the worse. Jane, yeah, it's kind of dark. It's not going to match what we were doing before. HBO wants it that way. They do? They want it to look like we're shooting during a blackout? (laughs) They they like this look. They don't want it to look like we're shooting behind-the-scenes footage anymore. Uh I showed them some of the stuff that we were doing, and they want to make it look like a real documentary. Really? Yeah. They Mm. think that they... Yeah, what is it? They think that there's a real interesting angle about you and the obstacles that you're facing with this particular role Mm -hmm. about your career, your family. Wow, that's great. Okay, good. But still, I'm going to need a couple more lights here, so that would be great. I like it like this. Do you? Yeah. Okay, well, that's great that you do. I'm going to need a few more lights if you want to continue with our little documentary, okay? The audio, of course, does not capture the genius face journey Valerie is having here. She can say so much with a a scrunched nose or a laugh weaving through her words or a nod that suggests she understands and accepts, but really she's just measuring out professionalism, just trying to stay in, in her mind easy to work with and maintain that reputation. But then Jane pushes back, ignores her requests. Valerie is, in fact, not being heard. When Jane tells Valerie she likes it like this, not even HBO, but that this is how she prefers it, there's this bulged-eye, pursed-lip indignation with Valerie, a a full-body, oh, really? But she never raises her voice. She just becomes the firmer no. I love that, oh, do you? That's nice. I'm, I'm glad that you do. And the way that she calls it our little documentary, she knows that she has the upper hand, finally. She has some power in this business. 
in the reality competition that is the comeback where Valerie gets rewarded for navigating the precipice of humiliation and degradation long enough without quitting or going over the edge, her prize for this moment is both the upper hand on Jane and then catching Liz from the New York Times before she left to get some clarity on what she meant by brave. This is probably one of her greatest prizes, and it's a, a reward for one of her greatest victories. It's appropriate that this episode is called Valerie is Taken Seriously because it's not just about her acting, but her voice in the conversation. She is insisting on being heard in a whole new way. This conversation with Liz is really important, not only because she's a writer for the New York Times expressing these thoughts, but because she is validating Valerie in a way that she's never experienced before. Even when Mickey tried to tell her she could really act, Valerie couldn't hear it. But the press? I mean, that's a whole other story. Is, is there something you needed? Uh, I, well, just, you know, wanted to say it was so nice to meet you. And I'm, you know, really looking forward to reading that article. It was nice to meet you, too. Yeah. Oh, good. Good. Okay. You know what? I just have, um, thanks. I just have one quick question. Um, when you said that I was brave, uh, you know, um, is that because you meant the way I looked? No, no. I meant you were so emotionally raw. People have never seen that side of you before. It felt like you were exposing the inner part of yourself in a, a very surprising and compelling way. Surely you must have been aware of what you were doing. Sure. Yeah. Sure. It's just, you know, usually brave. You know, that's... He's that when an actress is, you know playing a man or not wearing makeup or gained 50 pounds, you know. No, no, that's what I no, thought. that's not what I meant. Okay, oh, okay. Valerie, I think people are going to see you in a whole new light when this show premieres. You do? Yes. Wow. Um, well, I really have to go. Yeah, oh, be sure, doll. Yeah, safe, have a safe trip. Okay. Jane, I'll do whatever you want. Okay. Oh, there's Polly G. He's not dead. That's good. I'm Val. Do you want to open your gift? Oh, <laughs> sure. Thank you. I should. It's open. Is it open? I got bored. I wanted to see who it was. Did you? Oh. Look at that. Can you see that? Oh, my gosh. It's a star. Seth Rogen gave me a star. He's saying I'm a star. That's so pretty. Love it. It's a good day. Okay, let's go. All right. Okay, let's do it. The diva's back. <laughs> I can't help but love the script work of having Liz tell her, I think people are going to see you in a whole new light. The relief that washes over Valerie, the entire shift in tone and energy it's hard to not get swept up in it. It's easy to forget the profound narcissism of this moment, that it's not really as heartwarming as it feels, especially with the cranberries playing underneath. I love that Valerie calls her doll when she says goodbye and how real and relaxed she sounds when she says, Jane, I'll do whatever you want. There's also this great micro moment after that before she spots Polly G driving away in his convertible, which is another shot we've seen in what feels like the, this exact spot nine years ago, 
where Valerie is just quietly in her joy. She is, for Valerie Cherish, at stasis. But then, to cap it off, she opens her gift from Seth Rogen, and it's a decorative starfish. A major Hollywood actor thinks she's a star. It's also such a profoundly generic gift that it, this is largely up for interpretation. But Seth Rogen this season is almost always kind to Valerie, which we'll discuss next week. So I'll assume the best. But I, I love here in this moment, just before the end of the episode, where Valerie quietly says to Mickey or to herself, it's a good day. You know, none of the elements of her life have changed. You know, the lighting is still just as low. But Valerie's concern was never the wattage. It was just the light that people would see her in. But I feel like a tiger on one kiss from Valerie. I couldn't stand tomorrow, and they could have today. If someone took my Valerie a half a mile away, if I had a billion dollars. And a banker's salary I'd spend it all on flowers To give to Valerie And that, my friends, was part six of Cherishing Valerie, The Assassination of Valerie Cherish. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on the matter. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the wife, on network, on anything else. I, I just like hearing from you guys. It really, like, I see the little number one or more in my inbox, my Gmail for in the details pod at gmail.com, and it is such a dopamine hit. So come on, add to that addiction, friends. <laughs> just kidding, but you totally should. And the way to do that, obviously, is to drop me an email at inthedetailspod at gmail.com or uh, connect with me on Twitter at Colin Drucker. Drop me a message there or just, you know, a, a little tweet or a like or whatever the whatever you want to do on Twitter. I can't tell you what to do. Um, and if you haven't gotten a chance to go to iTunes, if you, if you would be so kind to leave your thoughts on the matter, to leave a positive re- rating and review, um, you know, you, you listen to podcasts you know what it means it means a lot it's great it's super helpful um so that more people can queen out on these nuances with us uh next week i don't know what next week's gonna be it may be more cherishing valerie there's i believe there's gonna be two more parts to cherishing valerie so uh i'm i can't wait i've got a couple other ideas in mind i have a guest coming on soon to talk about another fun thing so we've got a fun february um keep your papers peeled keep your ears open and uh thank you as always for stopping on by to in the details to clean out with me once again on all of valerie cherish's micro moments acting choices and magic and minutiae see ya